just want to give you something real brief and then we'll get started. I had the opportunity to go to the Free Grace Alliance um, annual meeting down in Arlington, Texas, and the theme of the meeting was on evangelism and discipleship. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, present a uh, main session on Acts 15, the importance of establishing who God is, and also got to talk about in a breakout session, um, unconventional ways to reach people. It was a very encouraging week, really pushing for evangelism, really pushing for the, the soundness of what it is to make disciples, and that's what the church ought to be about. And I thought, wow, Lord, I'm, I'm excited about uh, using some of the things I learned when I get home. And uh, I'm getting on the plane. Okay, my seat's 13A, 13A, 13A. You know how it is, you're going down through there, and because you're group seven, it's like you feel like you're the last person that got on the plane, right? Where am I going to put my stuff? You know, I don't, I don't like checking my bags at all, but sometimes you have to when you're group seven, right? So I'm going through in uh, 13A, 13A, and I look over, and there's a gentleman sitting there, and I have the window seat. I was like, okay, great. So I said, you know, excuse me, sir, I'm supposed to sit here, and he said, oh, yeah, let me get out of your way. I'm sorry, and let me sit down and everything. We began talking, and he's a Muslim. And I said, thank you, God. <laughs> right? So we started conversation, and my conversation starter was great. So where do you go to church in the Houston area? Because that's where he was from, because I know some pastors down there, and he was telling me where he's from, and he's coming up to Madison for training and all this. And um, he fell asleep for most of the flight, which you know just just happens. And so you're sitting there asking, Lord, what? Where's it, where's the open door here? Surely there's one. You don't sit me next to a Muslim, me knowing the truth, and not open the door. Uh, and so he woke up, and uh, <laughs> we began talking. And uh, it turns out that one of the tr they they gave out these sample packages of tracks at the conference. And as I was digging through looking for one, it just so happens I pulled out the one that we actually have here says, do you behave? And behave is marked down and says, believe. And I thought, wow, Lord, thank you. And so I pulled it out and I said, can I share something with you? It's very important to me. I believe it could be important to you as well. And he said, why, certainly. And then when he saw the idea of behaving and how it was marked out, you know, if we know anything about any other belief system in the world, we know this. They are all a work system. Only biblical Christianity is a grace system. And so immediately when he saw behave, you could tell he kind of thumbed through it. You know, it's not very long, but he was kind of looking. And so he put it in his pocket. And he said, well, thank you very much for that. And so uh, I watched him as he got off the plane, and I followed him for a little bit through the airport <laughs> to make sure he just didn't, you know, in the trash can. So I'm, 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 I'm uh, hoping that a track to be used. Tracks are effective, people. Please use them. They preach the gospel when you're not there. Uh, and I didn't have the out-and-out -out opportunity to just lay Jesus out in front of him without start preaching in the plane. That probably wouldn't go well with everybody else. So, um, But you never know. His name is Saeed if you want to pray for him. I have no clue how to spell it, but you could write it down phonetically the best you can but praying that that tract would prick his heart. So it was good stuff. I appreciate the opportunity to go, and uh, it was good. So I'll tell you what, let's pray, and we'll jump in, we'll get started. Father, thank you for uh, allowing this congregation 
uh, to come together under the banner of the blood of Christ, um, desiring, Lord, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling we've been called, to examine the Scriptures, to be found approved, to have our hearts changed, for the Spirit to take the material of the Word and to lead us forward. Father, you are truly gracious in how you've put us all together, bounded together, Father, under one common purpose of which your word espouses over and over again, Lord, that we need to be loving people to life in Christ. And I pray, Father, our hearts uh, would be challenged today, that our eyes would be open maybe to see people in a way that we haven't seen before, Lord, and to realize in humility all we have is from you. So thank you, God, for loving us so much. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So does everybody have your Bibles? If you don't, we have some up here. Just let me know. Definitely get you one. Everybody have your pens? Pen, yes, pens, the collector's items now. We don't even have any left to put in our visitors' bags. We have to put in different ones, yeah. I'm telling you. eBay, yeah, I need to get some more. Here's a funny thing. I got on Amazon the other day. And I typed in to see if anybody had left any reviews for a book I'd written, uh, which they hadn't, and that's what I kind of expected. Uh, but somebody was selling a copy of it for $79.99 used. <laughs> and I immediately took a picture of it and sent it to the publisher, and I said, I'm famous. <laughs> it's rare. And his response was, that's not right. We're selling it for $10.99. I was like... So he called and got that bumped back in the 1099 put forward. I could have been somebody. I don't know. It's weird. So we're in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, if you have your handout, we'll refer to it uh, in part, but mainly the handout that I've given to you is for commentary. But what I do want us to cover here is the foundational truths. We took three weeks to cover why in the world should we have a mission statement and why does the mission statement consist of what it consists of? Uh, I encourage you to visit the new website, gbcportage.com, and if you want, you can click on any of those and listen to that. Uh, but I want to go over these foundational points at the very beginning. Here's what we've covered so far to bring us all up to speed. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. God wants to be known, and he's made himself known through his creation, but he has gone above and beyond that. And get this, by his grace, an act of his grace, he doesn't have to do this, but he does. He gives us to us in plain black letters on white paper everything that we need to know about him in order to be saved and to live the abundant life right here. That's why everybody needs to have a copy. And if you don't have a copy, let me know and we'll get you a copy. Everyone needs to have a copy of the scriptures. Number two, God is the eternal, always been, always is, always will be, sovereign. He is a ruler, creator. All that he creates is good. He does not create anything apart from his character. If his character is good, that's what he does. Everything he does is in line with his character. Number three, man, us, we are a responsible agent. We are responsible for how we live. We're responsible for the choices we make. We're responsible for the directions that we take. And we are responsible to respond to God. We are held to a moral standard. And number four, God does not cause, start, originate sin. Sin does not come from God. 
God starts right here within us, every person, the human heart. If we want to know where the wrongs and the ills of the world and society is, the first step we can take is a look at ourselves. And get this, somebody wrote me an email and they said, I just don't understand why the sins that I struggle with are the same ones that I struggle with now. Shouldn't I be getting better? And my answer was no, not at all. You'll never get better in the flesh. Why? Because the flesh profits nothing. Jesus said very plainly in John 6, 63, Paul said it in Romans 8, 8, your flesh does one thing really well, and that's sin. That's what we do, and we are all PhDs in sin. That's what our sin does. Our flesh wants to constantly do wrong. It is only by the Spirit that we are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It is only by knowing God's Word, trusting what it says, and therefore operating in light of that truth. That's the only way. If you still struggle with the same sins that you've struggled with for a long time, welcome to the club. We're all on the same wavelength here. But how do we live above and beyond that? It is only by taking in God's Word and asking for the Holy Spirit to change us in light of God's Word, get this, from the inside out. We are too often looking for people to change from the outside in. If we can't see it, it's not valid. That's dangerous. Because now we become judges of their eternity. And here's one thing I guarantee you. By the end of the day, you'll have to flip that finger back on you. I promise. Because we are the most guilty people we know. The Bible even tells us we are self-deceivers. That, that scares me. I scare me. I hope you scare you. Some of you scare me. I hope I don't scare you. So here's what we're picking up at. We're picking up in Genesis chapter 11. We've skipped some things. We skipped 10. We're skipping some of 11. The goal isn't to hit everything that's going on, but to hit the major events, and we're working our way up to Christ. So in chapter 11, we're going to start with some generation type of genealogy stuff. Look at verse 27. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Now, this is what is known, what we've seen. If you're familiar with this, I'll bring it up again. The Toledoth structure of Genesis. And it's the idea of the descendants or the generations, and that is how the book of Genesis is divided up. These are the descendants in, in a certain manner. And notice this is of Terah. Now, real quick, when I started running through all these names, my brain started to turn to mush trying to figure out who did what, when, and where did they go, and how did this person die, okay? So if you have your pen, I'm going to give you a little helpful system that I put in place that really helped me put the pieces together. Next to Tara, write just a little F, and then maybe circle it. Why? Because he's the father of this group. He's the earthly father of this group. So Tara there, verse 27a, is F, the father. Now watch this. Tara became the father of, number one, Abram. Number one, circle it, Abram. Number two, Nahor. Number two, circle it. And number three, Haran. Number three, circle it. So we've got F, one, two, and three. We got that? Terah, Abram, Nahor, Haran. Everybody got it with me? Okay, good. Because this is about where I got messed up. And Haran became the father of who? Lot. Now, just for the sake, we know who Lot is. He's not brought up a lot, but I still put a number four there just to keep everybody straight. Okay? So notice that Lot is Haran's son. 
Verse 28, Haran died in the presence of Terah. So number three died in the presence of F. Everybody got that? Everybody see why I had to do this? It's almost like cats with yarn, right? So notice, Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. In Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, we have this handy-dandy map that I want to show everybody. If you wouldn't mind, guys, let's just leave it up here for a little bit so we can kind of explain. But in this map, this is a map of what it looks like in the Middle East. It's kind of dark there right now. <laughs> Maybe they've got overcast like we do. By the way, when I got back uh, on Wednesday, I expected to get off the plane, and when I rolled Madison to see all the flags at half-mast after the Packers game last week, but that wasn't the case, so... Hey, I like Aaron Rodgers, okay? I do, but I just, I know how down everybody is about it. So. Brett's our guy, right? Brett Favre, not the other guy, right? All right. So notice here, boo. Come on, y'all. Right here, Ur. Ur's right here. Here's the Persian Gulf. You're going to find, make me sick, y'all. Um, the Euphrates River comes down through here. This is what is known as Babylonia, and right up in that city, see where Babylon is right there? Somewhere in that region is the idea of in chapter 11 where Babel's from. So when we talk about they died in Ur of the Chaldeans, we're talking about over there. Now, some people have said that, no, the Ur that they're actually talking about is up north there because of Mesopotamia and all this stuff. I don't think that it is. It doesn't seem to be this. But here's what I want you to realize when we talk about Abraham leaving today. From Ur over there, notice all the like lines that go up. And then uh, shrink back, guys, if you don't mind. There we go. See how it goes up to the top? You've got Padana Ram up there at the top, and then it comes down by the Mediterranean Sea and travels down here, Dead Sea right here. Here's the Arabah, uh, Gulf of Aqaba uh, right here, that kind of stuff. Everybody see that shaded in portion? Anytime that you hear the phrase, the Fertile Crescent, that's what it is. Sorry, I'm in some of your guys' way. The Fertile Crescent starts over here at the Persian Gulf, goes up to the top. It makes like a crescent moon type shape, and then it comes down like this. And the reason is, is because that's where all the water is. That's where all the vegetation is. That's where it is. Does that make sense? The reason why, whenever Abram's going to be called, he can't travel from Ur straight over here is because of desert. You'll die is the reason. So he had to follow the vegetation where it's going. Well, where did, look at it again. Haran died. He died over here in Ur before anything happened, okay? Now, let's move forward here in our text. Verse 29, Abram, number one, and Nahor, number two, took wives for themselves. The name of number one, Abram's wife, was Sarai. And the name of number two, Nahor's wife, was Milcah. Now, watch this. The daughter of who? Haran, number three. Now, wait a second. Number three dies in Ur of the Chaldeans, correct? And who was number three's son? Lot. Excellent. Number four. So, notice this. Milcah, who ends up being Nahor's wife, is actually Lot's sister. Making sure everybody gets that. Yeah. Now, everybody's like, oh, how in the world does that happen? Here's the reason why. is because sin had not progressed through the hereditary channels to the point of causing any kind of mishaps with that close of a relationship in pregnancy. It just hasn't blossomed or developed in that direction yet. So it was still permissible. In fact, 
Those type of relationships are not forbidden until we have the giving of the law much later in Exodus. So it works. We just feel weird about it. But notice that's how it is. All right. So notice the daughter of Haran, number three, the father of Milcah and Iscah. So we have another child that's brought up here. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Verse 31, Terah, the father, F, took Abram, number one, his son, and Lot, number four, the son of Haran, number three, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's, number one, wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans. In, now, here's the reason why. Pay attention to this. This is important to see what happens here. In order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. Now, Haran, everybody see that up at the very top? Everybody see up at the very top? You've got Padanaram, and if you just go up a little bit, Haran, right there. Everybody see it at the top? That's how far they traveled. Who doesn't see it? Okay, you don't see it. See Padanaram up there? Okay, you got Karkamesh right there, yeah. And nobody's doing that. I just did it because I wanted the spirit, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> magic so but but right up there is where it's at so they travel all the way up now if you notice to the right of Haran everybody see that little line there region of Ur of the Chaldeans that's one perspective of it I personally don't think that happens and here the reason why is we're going to look at a couple of passages that actually tell us that Abram and Terah lived on the other side of the Euphrates now you might say well that kind of Adds that there, yes, but notice they don't cross the Euphrates in order to get to Haran. Everybody see how the Euphrates runs up this direction underneath? Everybody see that? But notice under here in the Ur, you have to cross the Euphrates once if not twice probably in order to get all the way up to Haran. Everybody see how that works? Okay, so let's do this. Uh, notice that they're entering the land of Canaan, that's their destination, and they went as far as Haran and they settled there. Now watch this, verse 32. The days of Terah, there's the father, were 205 years... And Terah died where? In Haran. He didn't make it to the promised land. I think there's a reason why, okay? Now watch this. Let's take our Bibles. Put your finger here real quick. Let's turn to Joshua 24. Over to Joshua 24. It's not too far. In fact, I have a string here. Everybody use your string. Thank God that the Lord convicted somebody put strings in our Bibles, right? That's helpful. Helpful tool. Joshua and we are going to chapter 24. Anytime that you find somebody like Joshua or Stephen in Acts chapter 7, we're going to look there in just a second as well, giving you a history of Israel, it's real important to read it in relation to Genesis because you get some valuable commentary. So, Joshua chapter 24. Let's start in verse 1. We're going to read uh, the first three verses here. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel. Now, pay attention to Shechem because we're going to see that mentioned under another name here in just a second, but, but have in your mind that name, okay? And he called all the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, Okay beyond the river, capital R, what's it talking about? The Euphrates. Namely, Terah, there's our F character, right? There's our father. He says there, the father of Abraham, there's number one, and the father of Nahor, number two, and here it is, 
And they served what? Which means they were what? Anybody know? Pagans. Pagan is not a dirty word. It just demonstrates somebody who doesn't believe in Yahweh, the creator of all things. They're pagans. That's the problem. They worshiped or valued everything else besides Yahweh. They're worshiping idols. They're bowing down to stone-crafted idols. They're bowing down to wood that is shaped like certain things. So think about this whenever this call happens. So that's important to know. Now, turn with me, if you would, over to Acts. It's funny because it's almost like I hear a sigh of relief every time we get into the New Testament. Acts chapter 7. This is the testimony of Stephen right before he's killed. It was a history. I love it whenever somebody who's Jewish gives a history lesson to the higher up ranking officials who are Jewish. That's always good. Acts chapter 7. We are going to start here. In verse 2, this is Stephen, he says, And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory, now watch this, appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Okay? When does God call Abram in this call we're getting ready to see? He calls him while he's still in Ur, which means... Abraham is still a pagan. Abram is a pagan. Worshiping pagan gods because that's kind of what the family has always done. And then God, out of nowhere, we have no indication that he ever spoke to Abram before, gets his attention and makes him this wonderful promise. Get up and go someplace that you've never been before, and I'm going to bless you tremendously. Interesting, interesting. Now watch how this moves on. Verse 3, and he said to him, pay attention because we're going to see it again, leave your country and your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, here it is, after his father died. Notice he could not go to the land that God was going to show him until after his father passed away. God had him move to this, this country in which you are now living. Now, everybody turn back to Genesis. We're going to start 12. Important points to know. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, leave where you live, right? And from your relatives, leave your people. And from your father's house, just in case the previous sentence wasn't clear, right? We're not just talking about grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles. We're talking about leave your dad. Now, what happened? Terah went with him, didn't he? And Lot went with him. And in fact, Abram could not move forward from Haran until after his father passed away. And when his father passed away, then he had clearance to go because God said, don't bring him. You think God means what he says? Yeah. And in fact, what we see is, is that Haran only lived how long? What did it say at the end of verse 11 or end of chapter 11? 205 years. Wait a second. Everybody was living six, 700 years, 800 years, 900 years beforehand. What happened? Don't go. I mean, isn't that kind of clear? God means what he says. 
Now watch what he's telling him. Why, think about this and, 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 and let's talk about it. Why do you think that if God's going to do something with Abram, he calls him to leave where you live and your relatives and your family? Why? Because they were worshiping idols. And what ramification would that have? You think it'd be real easy for your family to pull you back into idolatry after the creator God of the world had just spoken to you? That would never happen to me. If he spoke to me, I would follow him wholeheartedly. <laughs> Wrong, right? We'd be sinning as soon as somebody offered us brownies, man. We'd be out the door. It doesn't take much to lead a heart wayward, okay? But notice what God's trying to do. Separate himself. Sometimes you just got to get alone to realize who God is. Does everybody want to hear a sad story? Okay. When I first got serious about my relationship with the Lord and he was really moving in my life, I was involved in all kinds of sin and I thought, oh my gosh, everything I'm reading is completely incompatible with how I'm living. I got to do something. So I packed up all of my stuff and moved to this little town 30 miles away and lived in this little two-room apartment that had no heat. Yeah, I had to wait for you. Yeah, I was in a bad way, guys. <laughs> Woo, you don't know the struggles I've had. But I was sitting there relying on the heat from the store underneath me on the square to come up through the ground so that I would have, up through the floor so I'd have some heat. And I spent a solid year isolated from people. I went to work, I went to church, and then I went home and sucked my thumb in the fetal position like a fool. Because I didn't know what to do. I just knew that I had to break myself from this sin. And understand this, you don't realize the power that sin has upon you until you tell it no. It's a hard way to do. But here is one thing that God taught me in that year's solitude. He taught me, you don't need nothing else but me. And it took being separated from people to realize that. And then I met my wife. She was in this little town. Praise Jesus, right? Good stuff come to those who wait. Okay. Now, notice that it's called to separate. Isolate yourself. Get alone with God. Now, this had to be a real big deal. You've never been here, but you're going to go there. Okay, that's where we're going. And look what it says here. Verse. The, the, let's read verse 1 again. Go forth from your country, your relatives, your father's house. And here it is. Three things that you need to mark in your Bible. Why? Because these are found. Foundational. This has normally been called the Abrahamic covenant. It's not yet. The, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant doesn't come until chapters 15 and 17 it develops and 19 it develops. This is just the beginning traces of the promises that God is making to him. So watch what happens here. To the land which I will show you. Land is the first thing you need to mark. God, sounds silly, God is a God of real estate. He is. In fact, we're told in Acts chapter 17 that he decided that people will live where they live at the time in which they were born for one sole purpose, that they would reach out and find him, the almighty creator. God has so orchestrated our geography, our proximity, and our timing for one purpose, to know him. He is a gracious God. He had you born when you were born for one reason, so that you would have the maximum potential to respond when he draws you. Awesome. Praise the Lord for that, man. Yeah, that's good stuff. I love it. Does everybody want to look at that? 
Yes, you do. Let's move there. Everybody, strings, right? Put them here. Acts 17, let's go. It's a good verse. You talk about meditating on something, excellent. Acts 17, we're going to start in verse 24. I love the sound of flipping pages. Please don't be one of those click, click people. Let me, what translation are you using? Click, 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 write your phones. Click, click people. Use some paper. God gave it to us, right? But I can highlight in my phone. But I can write notes. No, you can type notes. All right, moving on. Chapter 17, verse 24. This is Paul's response. The God who made the world and all things in it, creator, right? Since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He can't be contained by structures. You can't represent him in symbols. It's impossible. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Does God need anything from us? No, not at all. He is the Lord. He is completely apart from any need. He is all self-sufficient. As though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Get that. He gives it to all people, life and breath and all things. In him is the light of life. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. Now watch this. To live on all the face of the earth. Here it is. Having determined their appointed times when they would live and the boundaries of their habitation, where they would live, for what purpose, Paul? Verse 27, that they would seek God. Now watch this. If perhaps they might grope, feel for him, and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. It's not like he's hidden somewhere. It's not like he's 100 miles away and we've got to catch a flight in order to get over there. He's right in front of all of us. But people were placed born in the time and geography, and God orchestrated it all for one purpose. He wants you to know him. Is God about evangelism? You bet your sweet bippy he is. All right. Let's move back to Genesis 12. Of course he is. He loves people. He died for people. So notice the very first thing, to the land which I will show you. Land is the first thing at the very end of verse 1. Verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. There is the promise of seed. S-E-E-D. Seed. Through Abraham is going to come, or through Abram, we can't call him Abraham yet. Through Abram is going to come progeny. The next one. And I will bless you. The idea of blessing will come through him. And notice what it says here. And make your name Great. Don't we often see the Pharisees referring back to Abraham in situations? It's either Abraham or Moses. So we know this name would be great. In the last line of verse 2, and you shall be a blessing. That means you are to be a blessing to others. In other words, Abraham's demeanor in encountering people was to seek to be a blessing to them in a personal way. Number 3, or verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you. Pay attention. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Now, something that gets damaged whenever you move from one language to another is that you could have various names that are all represented by a translator's choice of one English word. Now, we saw this with the problem of love, correct? 
There's a phileo love, which is like a brotherly love. And then there is agape, the unconditional love that we want to be all about and that God is all about in relation to us. Right here with these words, curse, we have a problem. The reason is, is because the first mention of curse is not the same as the second mention of curse. The first mention of curse here, here's what it means. It means to belittle someone or to treat them lightly. It means to consider them of no value kind of thing. The person who belittles you and doesn't embrace you, uh, considers you as, eh, whatever. If you treat Abram that way, look what it says, I will curse. The second word there means to ban, to be placed under a curse or to be bound to a curse. That is the difference between these words regarding curse. Now, I'm going to say something. It might sound a little controversial. And do I believe that all issues are important when we talk about politics? I do. This verse right here dictates how I vote. When I vote, is abortion a serious issue? Yes, it is. Are drugs a serious problem? Yes, they are. Is freedom of religion to exercise that important? Absolutely it is. But none of those things are going to do anything as far as being humble and respectful before the Lord of glory if we do not get concerned about what the relationship of that leader looks like to Israel. That makes the difference. And God is very clear here. Does that mean that we condone atrocities that Israel commits? Absolutely not. God never says compromise on sin in order to get a blessing. That's completely contradictory to his character. But what does he say? If you bless them, I will bless you. But if you belittle them, if you neglect them, if you treat them as insignificant, I will bind a curse upon you, is the idea. What does that do for replacement theology? How many people know what replacement theology is? Okay, we have 20 minutes, Tom. Replacement theology is the idea that the church has replaced Israel in God's prophetic timeline. In other words, all of the promises that God has made towards Israel, because Israel was so disobedient in her idolatry, God has said, eh, you know what, this pot doesn't cook very well. And so now we're going to come up with a new pot that's a church, and what we're going to do is, is we're going to transfer all of those blessings spiritually speaking, to the church. Now, here's the problem with that method of thinking. Number one, you have to violate a literal interpretation of Scripture. If the words don't mean what they mean, how can you ever know what's going on? See what I'm saying? That's very important to understand. If you can't, and God wants to be known, so he's revealed it in plain words that people can understand. If you can't take it literally at face value, you're in trouble. Number two, it causes anti-Semitism. Why in the world should we even care anything about Israel now that the church has replaced them? And what you find is if you draw that thinking to a logical conclusion, you have no choice but to agree with Hitler because what he was doing was godly. Everybody see how messed up that is? See, these ideas may sound good up front, but if you take them to their logical conclusion, you realize that ain't right. So, no, there are two programs that God has going on. Israel is Israel. The church is the church. Now, what has happened? God has brought forth a people. 
that will manifest the blessings of his coming kingdom for the world to see and to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. We see that in Romans chapter 11. The reason why he has put them, not done away with them, put them on the back burner of history right now is because when Jesus showed up, they killed their Messiah. They did not respond to him, even though everything in the scriptures lined up perfectly with who he was. And if you read the scriptures carefully, you will see that the Pharisees, number one, are speaking on behalf of the whole nation, and that's what brings their judgment. But number two, overlook plain instances of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. Now, in order to be a Pharisee, you had to have the Old Testament memorized. So for them to say, we just didn't know, doesn't seem like it. Seems like they got jealous. Seems like they didn't want Jesus to take all the clout. And so their solution was, let's kill him and get him out of the way. So that's where we are right now. Now, when the church is raptured and taken away, Israel now comes to the front of the burner of prophetic history again. And this is when you step into the book of Revelation. So does that make sense? I got that done in three minutes. Right, which nobody should ever expect me to do anything like that that quickly, right? That was funny whenever uh, Jerry was reading and said, he may present a sermon in an hour <laughs> or so, <laughs> right? So that's good. So let's read verse three again. And, I, and thank you, Tom. That's a, that's a really good question. Please ask questions. Now, this is a really big small group. I'm okay with it. Uh, and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How do we know that? Because Messiah comes from the offspring of Abraham. And who did Jesus die for? The world, the world. In fact, one of my favorite pages in my Bible is this one right here. See that blank page right there? Everybody see that? Because that's everybody that Jesus didn't die for right there. Everybody right here. Is that a good joke? Back to verse four. Verse four. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and, uh uh-oh, Lot went with him. Lot goes too. Now, from what you know, and we're not necessarily going to cover it, does Lot being with him cause problems later? Stay home, Lot, right? And notice this, this is important. Now, Abraham, or sorry, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarah, his wife, Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions, which they had accumulated and the persons, the servants that they had, which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus, they came to the land of Canaan. Now, this wasn't just somebody pull up the U-Haul and let's drive over. This was a caravan. All of their possessions, all their cattle, all their goats, all their sheep, everything, okay? It got to be a big deal. When you moved, you moved. Verse 6, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, there it is, just like we saw before in Joshua. Shechem, which is also known as the Oak of Moray. Now, the Canaanite was then in the land. Here's the interesting thing about it. Who wrote Genesis? Oh, the Holy Spirit, yes. But who, who, who did he inspire to write it down? Moses. Notice that Moses is using times and places of his present day when he's writing to refer back to ancient things. We're going to see that here again in just a second. It was known as the Oak of Moray, but it was later known as Shechem in the time in which Moses wrote this down. It says here, verse 7, the Lord appeared. Here's the second time the Lord has appeared. He appeared to Abram and he said, to your descendants I will give this what? Land. That's promise number one if you want to mark it. 
land, real estate. Real estate is important to God. He decides who lives where and when. He decides who gets to keep their land and because of rebellion, loses their land. So notice, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. The promise for land is reiterated. How does Abram respond? What's he do? Sum it up in one word. Is it idol worship? It's not idol worship, but it is what? It's worship. God, you have promised me that you're going to give me this land. Did he have the possession yet? No, but the promise was there. How's God doing on keeping his promises? Excellent. Notice that whenever we see that God has kept his promises, the proper response is worship. To worship him for what he has said he is going to do. Man, we have a lot to learn about that because what does that do? Worship keeps you humble. Good point. Watch how this develops. Verse 8. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel. Now, Bethel means house of God, and Bethel is not named Bethel until Genesis chapter 28, whenever Jacob receives the vision and he names it Bethel. This place was previously known as Luz, L-U-Z is what it was previously known as. But it's not until later on in Genesis that the name is changed to Bethel. Again, Moses writing from his standpoint, probably sometime in the time of Deuteronomy, back onto what he was seeing previously. So it says here, uh, to the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. What's he do there? Worships. Abram is all about worship. Every time he moves, God takes care of him. God provides for him. God keeps him safe. He's not lacking in anything. So far, he's in a land where nobody knows him. And if people said, hey, you're a stranger back then, they would just kill you instead of sticking out their hand to handshake. That's the way it was. Notice that God is taking care of him. And what does he do in response? He worships. Everywhere he stops, he worships. Everywhere you stop, do you worship? Right? I got to go to Walmart. You better worship before you go in. Because you won't want to worship when you get out. That's for sure, right? So notice. Verse 9, I offended somebody, I'm sure. Verse 9, Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Now, do we still have our map? We do. The Negev. The Negev is located, it's a southern mountain region, it's located down around here, okay? So when you have the Dead Sea, you have here what is known as the Arabah, this is the Gulf of Aqaba, and then down here is known as the Negev, very significant southern part. So every time you see that, and if you have a Bible that has the little numbers for translation, it'll say the southern region is the idea that it's dealing with there of the land. Notice it's not creeping into Egypt at that point. Verse 10, here's where things get hairy. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, to temporarily reside there. Stop. How many of you would leave Portage because of a famine? No? No? I mean, we're just going to sit around and eat our feet? I mean, what are we going to do? <laughs> I mean, there's a famine. There's no food. What are we going to do? What's that? Go to the farmers. Where's Laverne? We're going to have to put everybody up. That's good. Go to Point Go to Point <laughs> So, I mean, but think about it. A famine hits. 
Now, what's Abram thinking probably at this time? Whoa, I got my wife. I got Lot. Why'd that guy have to come, right? Because that means I don't just have my stuff now. I got Lot stuff. And do, and do animals like to eat? Yes, they do. So you're not, notice you're not just trying to keep three people alive or three people and your hired hands alive. You're trying to keep all of your livestock because that is your livelihood alive. There's no telling what he lost in that moment. There's a famine. I got to run. Anybody know what the problem is with this? What's the problem? Anybody know? God didn't tell him to go there, did he? Say it. Unbelief. God said, go to a land I will show you. Did God tell him to go to Egypt? Never happened. So what's happened? When times get hard, when my livelihood is threatened, I'm not going to trust where God has sent me to go. I'm going to find the quickest way out. Where is the escape hatch in order to make sure I'm okay? Get this. There is no more okay place to be than in the center of God's will. We often think safety is found in other places. It's not. Because when we go to those other places, the hand of God takes a step back. Scary. So notice this. The famine in the land, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about that when he came near to Egypt, that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Now, this is a hopeful passage, because she is 65 years old. Okay? And notice, Abram's like, baby. I think Pastor Steve could probably tell you that's in the Hebrew, right? right? Baby, I know that everybody wants you to be there, baby, because you are fine. 65, and she's fine. But what are we going to do about it? And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now, that may sound like an assumption, but it's not. The Egyptians were known for, if they wanted a woman to be part of their group, They'll just kill you and take her. That's what they were about. So notice, Abram is trying to devise the best plan here. Now pause. Is he still trusting the Lord? Get this. When he left the land, that was one act of disobedience. Now he's getting ready to ask her to lie. Sin compounds itself. Everybody see that? This is important to get, man. Don't miss it. So he says here, verse 13, Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, that I may live on account of you. And here's the reason why he's asking that. Because if he was projected as her brother, and there's obviously no father of Sarai around, who gets to negotiate the bride price for her when it comes time? The brother does. It goes to the brother. What does that give Abraham an opportunity to do? Oh, they're going to move forward on this. Let's skip town, right? But that's not how it works. See, he thought he was crafty in doing it, but that's not how they handle the situation. Verse 14, it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. See, it wasn't just Abram because he was married to her, had to tell her she was hot at 65. Everybody thought so. Take from that what you want. Verse 15, Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. This is the first mention of the Hebrew word Hallel in the scriptures. It means to praise. In some of the Psalms, you will have the Hallel Psalms. And it's the idea of praising Yahweh for who he is. And they would actually sing and recite those Hallel Psalms while they were doing the Passover meal. We'll talk about that later when we get there. 
But it says here, Pharaoh's official saw her and they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Did anybody negotiate anything? Nope, she's mine. Gone. Notice it says here, verse 16, Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Here's the bride price for her. Doesn't matter if you want to give her to me or not. Here's the price for her. Pharaoh was pretty fair according to their customs, but there's still sin in the midst. Verse 17, But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Now here's the reason why this is important. Isn't Abram supposed to be a blessing? Isn't he supposed to get land? Isn't through his seed the nations of the world to be blessed? There's a lot riding on the reproductive structure between Abram and his wife. Somebody comes in there and messes that up, we got a problem. Now, if you skip forward when Abram repeats this mistake later, and you don't have to turn there, but Genesis chapter 20, it actually says that the Lord closed up all the wombs of Pharaoh's group. No one could get pregnant. There was something not right going on. So we don't know what he got struck with, but we know it got Pharaoh's attention real quick, okay? Verse 18, then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Whatever he got struck with, he knew it was Abram's fault. Get this. So he's brought to account. Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Somehow that got out. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Abram gets kicked out of Egypt. Pretty crazy. Now under normal circumstances, Pharaoh could have easily put Abram to death. That's the type of power Pharaoh had. In fact, we know from Exodus times, there was no one greater than Pharaoh. So moving on, verse 20, Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. I picture them at the edge of the Negev where Egypt is, and all of his soldiers going and kicking him right out, right? Kind of out, and he falls on the ground. Get all of his stuff out. Now, here's the amazing thing. He gets to keep the bride price, okay? Pharaoh didn't take back. And, and immediately, we're trying to call a spiritual timeout. Wait a second. That's not right. That's not right. Pause for a second. Think back to what God said. Is God going to bless Abram? Let me ask you this. Can Abram mess up his life royally and God still hold to his promise? Yes, he can. This promise, it's very important that you see this. The promise made to Abram and his offspring is unconditional. See, this is why this whole idea of the church replaces Israel will never work. It will never work for one reason. God's promise has no conditions stipulated. It doesn't rely on Abram's obedience in order to happen. It doesn't rely upon his compliance, his reverence, his worship, none of that. God chooses to step back from working with the world and he starts a brand new dispensation called the dispensation of promise where he promises one person, through you, I am going to preach who I am to the world. And the way I'm going to do that is by showing that I am faithful in fulfilling my promises. That's how it's going to happen. Unconditionally is how God loves. 
we wouldn't have been that giving. Chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and a lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel. Now watch this, to the place where his tent had been when? At the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the, what? Altar, which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Something interesting I want you to see about this passage. Did everybody notice that when God gave a promise and Abram trusted that promise, his response was worship. And then as he moved along in safety and the Lord provided for him, the response is what? Worship. But when he decided to let his circumstances get the best of him, and he took matters into his own hands, notice that he moved away from what God had promised him. And did he worship any time he was in Egypt? No. It wasn't until after he went where he shouldn't be that a lot of problems were caused, and he got humbled and kicked out of a country, that he went back to where he should have been at the beginning, and what did he do? He worshiped. Because there's something about failing when we are tested that the only way to recover from it is to come back to where you were and to worship. Not to try to make up for it, not to try to promise to do better, not to get your act together, but to simply come to him and say, God, I'm wrong, and I'm sorry. And my neglect of trusting you and my neglect to worship you for all that you've done for me. And I don't know a person in this room that is not severely blessed by his grace. Thank you, God. Thank you. And he worships. And the text doesn't say this, but I guarantee you he worshiped with his face on the ground. Let's pray. Father, at times in our life when we feel barren, or maybe we haven't trusted you as we should, Lord. I'm sure we have a drought in worshiping. We have a famine in worshiping. Father, I pray you bring to the surface of our hearts now a very good lesson to learn from Abram of holding fast to your word not operating in unbelief and worshiping and worshiping you. Father, I pray that we're sober about that, that we're not kidding ourselves, not deceiving ourselves, but Father, our hearts will be set free from maybe wallowing in our failure or a pattern of disobedience that we have, that we would come before you, we would humble ourselves, and we would worship as we once did. Thank you for your abundant goodness on this body of believers. We thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name, amen.